COVID cases are surging again. Just this morning, for the first time, the U.S. reported more than 150,000 new cases in a single day. COVID cases went up to staggering levels. Cases smashing records. The virus spreading into every part of the country. President-elect Joe Biden has warned that in the coming weeks, things will only get worse. We're still facing a very dark winter. There are now nearly 10 million COVID cases in the United States. On Monday, he announced a COVID advisory board. Comprised of distinguished public health experts to help our transition team translate the Biden-Harris COVID-19 plan into action. And Americans have big questions for the new administration. Will the country have to lock down again? Will there be a national mask mandate? Will schools stay open? Unfortunately, there are some sacrifices people are going to have to make. Dr. Celine Gounder was just named to Biden's COVID team. She's going to be one of the people who has to answer those questions. The way I think about it is you have a on and off light switch versus a dimmer switch. And what we're talking about is a dimmer switch. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Friday, November 13th. Coming up on the show, a first look at the incoming president's COVID strategy. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Dr. Celine Gounder has built a career studying infectious diseases like HIV, tuberculosis, and Ebola. I am an internist and epidemiologist, and I am a member of the Biden-Harris Coronavirus Advisory Board. She's also the host of a podcast called Epidemic. So which was more exciting, getting your own podcast or being named to the president-elect's COVID advisory board? <laughs> They're both pretty exciting in different ways. You know, a podcast, you can uh, kind of indulge your own interests and creative side in a way that I'm not sure that you can entirely do so um, when you're talking about public health policy for the nation. I would think a podcast would be more fun, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> How would you describe the moment that the U.S. is in right now with the pandemic? Frightening. I find our current coronavirus trends really frightening. The fact that we are seeing cases rising exponentially, and I think this pretends to be the worst of uh, the three peaks we've had so far. I don't call them waves because really we've never gotten to zero in between. It's really uh, peaks on top of ongoing transmission. And I am really worried about how that's going to play out. What makes this surge that we're experiencing now different from the first surge that we had in the spring? In the spring, we were still learning. This was brand new, and we didn't fully understand how to control it, how to manage patients. We didn't know how to 
treat it really yet. And there's a lot that we've learned in terms of how most effectively to control transmission. I think what's unfortunate is that we're not learning from our mistakes because there are things we should know better uh, in terms of masking, social distancing, indoor dining, and you know those kinds of high-risk settings. And we simply are not learning from those mistakes. So in two months when Joe Biden is inaugurated, what needs to happen for the country to be able to get the virus under control? Well, at a high level, um, there's going to be a lot of emphasis on scaling up testing. It is impossible to control something that you can't see. And in a sense, a lot of this we can't see because it's transmission by people who have no symptoms. We really need to know where, by whom, and why this is happening. So testing is going to be really critical here. I'll put a national testing plan in place with a goal of testing as many people each day as we're currently testing each week, a seven-fold increase. And contact tracing goes along with that, uh, again, to sort of characterize how the the virus is spreading and and how we can get ahead of it. I think some other things we're really going to be focused on is how do you scale up some of the new treatments and vaccines. Vaccines are their own logistical challenge of getting out a brand new vaccine to 330 million Americans in timely fashion. One other through line through all of these is going to be equity. Um, We know that people of color have been disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. And as we scale up testing, as we make vaccines and new treatments available, we want to make sure that they are given at least equitable access, if not priority access, uh, to, to these new technologies. You mentioned scaling up testing being a top priority. How much more testing would you like to see? We should be seeing millions of tests per day, not hundreds of thousands of tests per day. We need to be getting tests into communities, um, really decentralized so that people have easy access to them. And, and the best case scenario would be home-based testing. Um, the technology is not quite there yet. We haven't fully validated some of these tests that are out there, uh, but that may not be so far off that we'll be able to do that. In, in some places, you can't get a COVID test right now unless you're showing symptoms. Do you think that the U.S. should be testing people who don't have symptoms? We absolutely should be. When you test somebody in, in the hospital, in the doctor's office, you're trying to confirm your diagnosis that you think they may have coronavirus. And that then allows you to decide, should I give them monoclonal antibodies? Should I give them uh, steroids? So that is a very different use of testing from who is spreading the virus in a community. And if you're interested in stopping transmission of virus in the community, it really doesn't matter if that person has symptoms or not. You just want to know that they're transmitting. To figure that out, you have to be testing people without symptoms. How will the United States be able to be testing millions of people? This is likely to be one of the very first executive actions that President-elect Biden takes, which is to invoke the Defense Production Act. The Defense Production Act allows the president to compel U.S. companies to make supplies and provide services that the country needs for its defense. It's usually used during wartime, but President Trump invoked the law this spring when the nation was facing a shortage of ventilators. Biden has said he would use the act to do even more. As president, I'll use the full power of the Defense Production Act to drive the manufacturing of personal protective equipment, masks, gloves, gowns, and more. So that's the administration's plan for testing. 
But by the time Biden takes office, we may also have a vaccine. Earlier this week, the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer released some good news. Pfizer says its vaccine has been more than 90% effective in large-scale clinical trials. How would the vaccine factor into how we approach the pandemic over the next few months? So I think what we're doing in the short term is largely the same. We're still going to really be emphasizing masking, social distancing, ventilation, outdoors rather than indoors, and then really testing as frequently as possible and working with contact tracers. So that is going to continue to be the meat of what we're doing. Uh, Longer term, we're not entirely sure yet because we're not sure is the vaccine going to protect you from you personally as the vaccine recipient? Is it going to protect you from severe disease versus is it going to prevent onward transmission if you're infected? And it may well be that the vaccine protects you but does not result in herd immunity, at least the first-generation vaccines. Really? So that I could still get infected with the virus, but my immune system will deal with it, but I could still pass it on to people? That's right. It sounds like it almost just creates more asymptomatic carriers. We simply don't know yet, but that could be one of the results of vaccination. And so it's important for people to understand that and, and realize that we may still be living with masks and some of these other measures for a little while yet. But Dr. Gounder says that managing the pandemic and preventing more deaths goes beyond just what the government can do. It will also depend on how individuals behave. That's after the break. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. So we've talked about the logistics that the government is going to be focused on. What about the individual behavioral side of managing the pandemic? Do you think there should be indoor activities like dining or church or family gatherings? In terms of religious gatherings and family gatherings, I think we need to be creative. It's not that we cannot do these things. It's that we need to do them in a way that is safe. And so, for example, can we be setting up places where people can gather for religious services outside And I think, you know, continuing to leverage virtual technologies like Zoom, that really needs to be something that we continue to do for the foreseeable future, really. But aren't those restrictions, don't they sort of all add up to a lockdown? So I think it's important to distinguish, you know, lockdown shutdown from tightening up where you're really following the data Um, in a geographically community-targeted way. And you're not necessarily closing everything. It might just be, for example, that you are closing and tightening up indoor dining and bars and indoor uh, gym facilities and, as you mentioned, indoor religious gatherings, but that you're able to keep other things open. And so I think we have to first look at which are the places that are highest risk for transmission And then also, which of these things are most essential? And one of the things Dr. Gounder thinks is essential is schools. 
So if you're going to prioritize, what do we try to keep open? What do we close? You close restaurants first and you keep schools open as long as possible. So schools are not super spreaders. It's not that the risk is zero, but they're not super spreaders. And schools are essential services. Are you hearing anything from President-elect Biden or anyone else around him about the impacts that this will have on the economy? I understand, obviously, you're coming from this from the medical and scientific lane, but is there any interplay between the economic trade-off? Well, I, I think, you know, we've been saying for a long time, it's not public health or the economy. It's that you can mitigate, actually, the impact on the economy through public health. And we need to have financial, economic uh, safety nets for people to allow public health interventions to be successful. But in terms of your and your team's mandate, there's not sort of guardrails set around it in terms of how extreme any measure can be for the sake of preserving certain parts of the economy. I think we have a very pragmatic team that is focused on how can we be as measured in what we do, not draconian in our measures, and not just for economic reasons, but for mental health reasons, for social reasons, for for any number of reasons. It would be like saying, well, no one should ever have sex again because there's this virus called HIV. I mean, that's not a reasonable recommendation, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have to return to a full lockdown. I think we've learned enough that we can do things in a bit more nuanced fashion at this point. Biden is encouraging everyone to wear masks. Back in August, after COVID cases started to tick back up again, he went so far as to call for a three-month national mask mandate. Every single American should be wearing a mask when they're outside for the next three months at a minimum. What do you think about a national mask mandate? I think we should all be wearing masks. I, I think a national mask mandate, it would be difficult to enforce, but I think it could send the message to people, look, this is something that you need to take seriously, that we are in a crisis. Mm-hmm. So in other words, just the federal government should say that everybody has to wear a mask, but not actually put forward any penalties if people don't. Yeah, I'm not sure how you would enforce it, frankly. A lot of this, especially mask mandates, but also limiting social gatherings, it all requires people to participate willingly. How do you convince the public to continue to go along with this? Well, with respect to masks, I think one thing that has been encouraging is Americans actually are getting better at wearing masks. Um, The vast majority of Americans, I think over 90% report um, wearing masks at least some of the time. And I think that's really promising. And people, it's not just kids who are susceptible to peer pressure. All people are susceptible to peer pressure. We, We do what we do in large part because it's what's the social norm. And as this becomes more and more the social norm, I think you're actually going to see the people who continue to resist um, shrinking and shrinking. But there's also a fatigue factor. I mean, we've been dealing with this pandemic all year. A lot of people who have been staying home are feeling isolated and just drawn to spending more time with people. How do you combat that? I think people just need to think creatively about how they can do this, maybe figure out how to make it something fun and different. Um, Maybe you're going out hiking in the woods and just maintaining that six feet apart. 
from one another on the trail, but there are ways to enjoy time together safely in this moment. You know, right now, I think it's, you know, below freezing in Minneapolis at the moment. How how can people maintain outdoor gatherings as the weather gets so cold? Well, it's not going to be possible everywhere. Uh, I mean, it's simply not. Many healthcare providers are working on solutions like telemedicine um, to reach out with group therapy, individual therapy. You can try to find other group activities uh, online like that. Um, whether it's a virtual book club or just getting together for beers with your friends on Zoom. We were talking earlier about the risks that come with family gatherings and social gatherings, like Thanksgiving, which is coming up just a few weeks away. What advice do you have for people as they try to make plans? In an ideal world, the safest thing would be to only celebrate Thanksgiving with your household bubble I think some people will think that the risk is worth it and will still want to celebrate the holiday with other people. And so for those folks, they really need to be very attentive to these other measures. You know, the way I think about it is you have masks, you have social distancing, and you have ventilation. And ideally, you're doing three out of three. At a minimum, you should really be doing two out of three. And so if you're not wearing a mask when you're eating and drinking, you really need to be doing the ventilation and the social distancing. And so ideally, that would mean six feet apart outdoors. I hope you don't mind a personal question, but what, how are you dealing with this in your life? Are you, has this affecting your plans for the holiday? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> it has in many ways. Um, right. So my husband and I will be celebrating Thanksgiving, just the two of us and our two dogs. We will be doing a virtual celebration with my mom and my sisters and their families. It's really sad because I have two young nieces, one who is two, the other one is five. We have really missed out on a lot of fun stuff with them this year. And to miss out on the holidays with them is is just really sad. I'm sad I haven't seen my mom in, in almost a year now. You know, my, my husband's father passed away um, a couple months ago now. He and his brother had been going to visit my father-in-law in in a memory care center, taking turns every other month, paying him a visit. And they were not able to do that um, basically, you know, since end of February until just a week before he passed away. We're going to have to make some sacrifices in this moment. I think we need to think about this like our World War II and the sacrifices our grandparents made or parents made during that time and that this is the test of our generation. That's all for today, Friday, November 13th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and the Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are Kate Leinbaugh and me, Ryan Knudsen. The show's produced by Catherine Brewer, Gerard Cole, Pia Gadkari, Annie Minoff, Afif Nasuli, Ricky Nevetsky, Enrique Perez, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, Annie Rostrasser, and Rob Zipko. Our engineers are Griffin Tanner and Nathan Singapak. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from Emma Munger, So Wiley, Peter Leonard, and Blue Dot Sessions. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolko. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.